Welcome to Help From Future Self. Hey, what's happening, Archons? Welcome to Help From Future Self, a casual Keyforge discussion podcast. My name is Alex, and I'm joined by my Keyforge pals, Rick. Hey. And my buddy, Blake. Yo. And it has been kind of busy around these parts for Keyforge over the last... Uh, the last seven days since we recorded, uh, Rick and I got to play in a local tournament, and Rick, you got a very special prize out of that. I did, and I'm actually still currently trying to find it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the local stores, One Stop Games, actually had a bunch of the named decks, you know, those special promos that were produced during the Call of the Archons uh, Age of Discovery era, and they've been slowly giving them out as prizes for their startup events, and Rick, uh, uh, he basically served everybody in the store who showed up to play Keyforge last week. And uh, he, he gave us uh, a little preview of what uh, that deck looked like uh, that night. So it was pretty cool stuff. Well, actually, it is a deck that I've been using in Chainbound for a while. But it was doing horribly. And then I had a session with Blake at one of our casual nights. And then I took it the next night to this event. And it just blew everybody away and has been blowing people away since haven't you racked up like four chains on it since we played last week uh actually only two chains i just found the deck nice one stop shops shiny giant <laughs> robnar mars and sanctum nice so the object lesson here is rick won that deck the the shiny giant playing a deck that he's owned for ages Yep. And just, you hadn't been getting the results out of it. So what was the level up moment? What was what you changed about the way you were playing it that made it so much more dominant in, in play? Because I got to play against it last night and I got smoked. Actually, it was funny. Um, there's, there's a section in there where I can kill my own creatures. And I do have another deck with a bad penny combo that kill your, kill your bad penny, bring it back back and forth and get amber for it but my brain didn't translate that combo because i don't have bad penny in that shadows it's 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 a different creatures so my brain didn't translate it but once blake showed me that hey you've got the cards to do it here you can do it i just i've been triggering it off every game it's gross so to it's play against yeah, it, it, it was uh, super, it was a wild game, actually. I was really into it. Um, one of the things that I think is really interesting about playing against decks like that one, and especially against playing against dominant Keyforge decks, and I think you guys, I would be interested to hear your perspective on it, is that very infrequently are those decks not fun to play against. Um, there are, of course, as with any game, decks that are not fun to play against because they feel degenerate. Um, but I find that Keyforge doesn't have a huge number of them outside of like the the Restring Guntis, uh, or formerly, I guess, the Restring Guntis combo, which has since been errated to to no longer allow you to lock your opponent out entirely. But I find that decks like the one that Rick is talking about that just have a really strong suite of cards and lots of different tricks, those are a little more fun to play against. Like, it doesn't feel like you're just getting pounded down with no options. It feels like you're sort of in that that chess game mindset of needing to really figure out what your answer is for each thing that deck can do. And sometimes I find playing against one of those decks multiple times over an extended period of time 
you really get the fun of trying to figure out, all right, I know this opponent and I know this deck. How am I going to play against it next time? How many more games? What's going to be the perfect deck to run up against it? I really think that's an enjoyable part of the game. Except when it's like Rick's deck, when it it has uh, like multiple ways of doing the same thing, going different paths, but you're ending up at the same result, which is why I think it's so powerful because it's not just that one way. You're going to play it a bunch of times and still see, oh, it did that again, but it wasn't using the same combination of cards. And I think that's why it's so powerful because you're getting that consistency through uh, different means each time. Mm-hmm. But Absolutely. I think I should point out too that it is a time traveler deck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Once again, card draw in Keyforge proves to be an extremely, extremely powerful mechanic, especially when it's a repeatable one, as it is in this case, thanks to it being a time traveler and some other tricks that that deck has in it. I look forward to playing against it again. Me too. We got to play last night a bunch of our different uh, Age of Ascension decks and really start to feel out, I think, a little more of the gameplay and the interactions between some of the cards in the set. Um, One of the things that we were talking about last night we got to see in action was the recently uh, clarified rules regarding Archimedes and what happens with Archimedes when there's a board clear. Um, this is kind of a controversy that's been going around within the Keyforge community over the last couple of days. So for those folks who aren't aware of Archimedes, I'm just going to bring it up here real quick so that folks can be aware of what we're talking about. Yeah, I, I got this one, Alex. It's uh, right, cool. So Archimedes is a two-power creature with Elusive, and it says each of Archimedes' neighbors gains destroyed archive this creature. And so how it works is when there is something that happens that destroys all the creatures, before the creatures actually leave the battlefield, the destroyed effect happens. So nothing has essentially been officially destroyed and gone into the um, your discard pile yet. They essentially have their trigger happen first. So as long as that trigger exists, it has to happen across. And since Archimedes states that the neighbors get it, it's basically one gets destroyed because that happens. Then the next one moves in. It adapts or it now adopts that destroyed trigger and it now triggers. And then it goes on, so on and so forth down the line until everything has been archived on your battle line. And then after that, it's Archimedes goes into your discard. That has been the official ruling. I mean, it kind of makes sense because they clarified something similar uh, last time around with effects that would destroy creatures um, and shadow self shadow self Mm -hmm. being the shadows creature that absorbs damage for its neighbors. Um, And they had said, you know, in cases where, uh the damage would go over the shadow self and destroy it it still absorbs all of the damage that uh, would have been dealt to the side creatures so it's kind of in that same vein essentially in that uh the uh, until that creature actually leaves the battlefield um destroyed wise the effect is taking place the effect is taking place exactly but this does make Archimedes one of the most crazy powerful cards in the game because it essentially means that even if you or your opponent board wipe or if you wipe your own board, you get everything back. Yeah, I think I think it's I don't think it's one of those things that I think it's powerful, but I don't think it's what people would call OP because if you are the player looking to do the board wipe, you just have to use something else to target Archimedes first. And especially if you have a bunch of creatures, it may mean you don't reap twice because you go once into Archimedes with the elusive and then once to get rid of it. And that's about it. You just have to play around it. It's one of those things where it's going to create a greater level of skill when applying your board wipes. It's not just like, well, uh, I'm in a battle here and I'm kind of losing it. So let's just reset with a board wipe. You're now having to think about that that play, which I think is very healthy for, for a game. Is A game that has strategy and 
making it so that you actually have to truly strategize before making just a, a Hail Mary pass like that. I think it's it's a, a really good thing for the game and and it's only a two power creature, so there's so many ways to remove it on its own. It's not exactly like it's some big block that's just gonna sit there and it's gonna trigger every time. All right, Rick, let me ask you this. You're an untamed guy. You're familiar with the must-removed untamed creatures. Do you put Archimedes up on the level of, say, a Hunting Witch or a Dusk Witch or another one of the super like high-profile, must-take-out, cannot-suffer-to-live creatures? Is Archimedes as strong as those now with this change or this clarification to the rules? Uh, I don't know because I haven't played enough Archimedes decks to, to say whether or not it is, but I did actually pull off the Archimedes whole battle line goes to the archive last night. Um, it it has the potential to be that strong, I believe. But I also must say that I have a double Archimedes deck that I definitely want to get into now, just to see how that goes. I think there's certain things that that really make this powerful. Like if you have a a deck, a Mars deck that has this and you have a key abduction, you can literally set up a key abduction a lot easier by, I guess, if you had a huge battle line. And there's there's all these new intricate things that occurred. Yep. And back to your saying about the, the comparison to the witches, I think I would say it's almost on par with a Witch of the Eye in a way because it, it's somewhat the same thing but with creatures. Because Witch of the Eye, I feel like a lot of the time you're going after action cards artifacts something like that not really the creatures necessarily most of the time Mm -hmm. and then with this archimedes is almost like the reverse because you're actually getting your creatures except you're getting a ton of them so i think it it has to be um i i don't know i would say on par because being able to get back an action that can really really help you like close out a game is different than getting a bunch of creatures that can you have to wait a turn where it's the witch of the eye is almost instantaneous. And this is a situational, like you have to create it. It's not like it's just going to happen where a witch mm-hmm. does happen. Mm-hmm. So I think the witch is slightly above, but there's definitely certain decks. Where I think this is more powerful than the witch. Yeah. Everything with Keyforge is always deck dependent. I am both in agreement and disagreement with you, Blake on Archimedes and where Archimedes is like the health of this particular ruling for the game. On the one hand, I 100% agree with you that more intricate strategy is a thing that's welcome, and having to really think about what you're doing uh, really does make the game more interesting. On the other hand, I've always felt that one of the strengths of Keyforge is the fact that games are very infrequently a total, like, one person stomping down another person. There's always a lot of give and take in the vast majority of games that I've played. Um... And part of that has always been the fact that there is an ease of clearing the board. There are so many board wipes. There's so many ways to just reset everything back to zero. And I'm not 100% sure that this ruling maintains that. Of course, you need decks that have Archimedes in it for it to have the impact. And you need to have it set up properly. But at the same time, there is the part of me that wonders if this is a thing that's going to change that essential nature of Keyforge, at least insofar as playing against Logos decks. Um, but but what about um, Arise with a key to disc, for example? Because that's no different. You're doing the same thing, and you're except you're getting to play them right away. This actually you have to wait till the following turn to do anything. No, I, I don't disagree with you on that. So I think and that was I think a combo that power. very much, you know, was was a difficult one to run up against. Certainly, but those also were attached to a huge chain penalty. 
right. you play a gateway to dis and then played uh, an arise you had five chains you were giving up like at least five turns worth of card advantage in order to be key able to, to do key that to dis, though no no not key to dis but that but was I mean, an artifact if you're if you're triggering this for yourself though the same way most of the stuff you'd be playing would also have the same thing because if you play undamaged creature coward's end you're getting three chains still Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're using it as an advantage for you, then you're still going to get those chains because no, there's no removal that doesn't, unless you have a key to desk with this, in which case it's basically a rise again with an archiving ability. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I, I I think it's I think it's comparable, but I I think you might be right in terms of because with a rise though you did have it was house dependent like you could only choose one house basically where yeah. this you are getting anything that's on the battle line. Yeah, yeah. So, so- that does give it more power. It's an interesting, we'll have to really see how it impacts the game as we continue to play. Uh, I'm not against the ruling as it stands. I'm okay with it, and I'm interested to see how it affects everything. But mm-hmm. it's also one of these things, and I think we've even talked about this, if not on the podcast, then certainly between the three of us in the past, is any ruling that's not super intuitive impacts the game because it makes things there's more to keep track of and it's harder to for people to understand intuitively what's happening on the board and i think that we're starting to reach a level of complexity where we're seeing more and more rulings that work in that way and that's a thing that changes the essential nature of keyforge um especially for new players getting into the game yeah you're absolutely right yeah yeah um all right Let's talk a little bit about some Age of Ascension cards. Uh, we started up a new feature last week called Over Under, where we each picked a card and we talked about whether it was overperforming per our expectations or underperforming per our expectations. Blake, have you got one for us this week? I do. And it's one that you got to experience why I'm going to put it as my <laughs> over. And uh, so yesterday, Alex and I played a exquisite game of Keyforge where we were literally going down to the wire with things. We had... Um, a board state that basically had a grump buggy out and we were both forging keys at 11 and eight and 10 at different times and 13. Like it was, it was crazy. And it was in my shard deck and I just have the one and they're very rare. I understand. And this one has a shard of greed, strength and hope. And the over for me was uh, the shard of greed from shadows which i had all three shards out which means i call shadows and i literally get three ember just for calling shadows the ability to just do that just so easily just get three ember and especially in a situation where keys are costing so much it was a huge advantage because unless you have one of those big like ember removal cards where you're taking a whole stack most of the time you're only getting off two uh three like absolute max and that's very rare and so being able to just generate three Ember, for sure, never mind any of the other Shadows cards you have out, like that guaranteed three, I found incredibly powerful. And Alex, I, I like your view on this too, because you were up against this and saw this happening. And I just thought, I was like, whoa, this is intense, like the way this is happening now. I think that genuinely, it's one of the craziest cards in the game if you have the appropriate setup for it. But I'm going to say this straight up, Shard of Greed is a guaranteed amber at minimum every time you call a shadow's turn. And mm-hmm. that's nothing to scoff at. Like, think about this for a second. Is there any other artifact you can think of that has even a comparable power in terms of just giving you, without having to do anything else, without any other dependent board state, just an amber for calling a house? I don't think there is. Nope, there is not. And I was thinking about this last night. So 
even just by itself, if you had a deck that for some reason only had that, or you had a game, which is not unlikely, where you could only get that one out, mm -hmm. still provides an enormous advantage to calling Shadows. And Shadows, as we saw with some of the organized play over the last couple of weeks, still a very dominant house, if not the most dominant house in the uh, Age of Ascension era. Yes, definitely. So, um, Alex, what was uh, your over-under? Mine's an under. Um I'm a big Brobnar guy. I really enjoy playing Brobnar, and I've pulled quite a few Brobnar decks in the Age of Ascension. Um, I'm still really getting towards the mechanics, and there's lots of cards that I've talked about a little bit that have been able to do work for me. Um, this one, I was kind of having slightly higher hopes for, and it just hasn't been doing nothing for me, and it's Foozle. So Foozle's deal is that Foozle is a five-power Brobnar creature, with a reap ability, if an enemy creature has been destroyed this turn, gain one. So it's essentially War Chest on a stick. War Chest had that same power as an artifact, but Foozle's a creature, which can then reap and also get you an amber on top of activating their power, which seems good, except for the fact that there is so much reap hatred in the set, even within Brobnar, that symmetrically affects both players that I barely ever get to reap with any of my Brobnar creatures. They're always fight creatures. And so Foozle's ability as a, a, a reap creature very rarely triggers and hasn't been doing anything for me in the games that I've been able to get her out onto the field. So I feel like it's one of those cards where I looked at it and I said, great, a war chest that I can just throw out on the field that'll also like do work for me, be able to fight, be able to reap, you know, and then on top of that, get me some other stuff. Superb just hasn't been working for me. Of course, always dependent on board state, depending on what effects are in play and everything else. But honestly, it's just not a card that I feel like is doing what I expected it to do. And that's why it's my under. I think it would almost be better if it was more like a, because of the way the set is almost like a, a passive state. And instead of just fighting, it's like destroyed from fighting. Mm -hmm. You get it. And that way it's, it's like, it's happening no matter what, even if you, because you're right. Like, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. If you get the little Rapskull out, that card is essentially useless. Yeah, exactly. And little Rapskull's a Brobnar card. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, you know, the, the chances are high that you or your opponent will get either an artifact or a creature that's going to invoke repate. And maybe the idea behind the design of Foozle is that, all right, fine, you know, Foozle is out and uh, you destroy a bunch of creatures and then you use Foozle uh, like a war chest and you get the amber, but uh, then you have to stun Foozle. So you can't do it turn over turn. Or then you have to sacrifice Foozle. Like, right. uh, or something else like that. Maybe that's the idea behind the design. I wouldn't know because I just haven't been able to get anything out of her yet. But maybe those are the strategic decisions we have to get past. And I was thinking about this last night as we were playing. I think that we are kind of conditioned not to want to use our creatures that are going to be impacted by things like uh, Orb of Invitus that'll stun it if it reaps, or a little Rapskull that forces it to fight instead of being able to do anything else. Maybe the idea is that this is a new depth of a strategy that's been introduced to the game. Mm -hmm. All right, fine. I'm going to use my cards with the knowledge that it's going to impact my ability to use them again next turn. Maybe that's the deliberate design decision that was made. What do you think of that, Rick? I yeah, I I agree with that. And what's your what's your over under <clears> today? Uh at least for this week my over is Punctuated Equilibrium, which is a action nice. from Untamed. Love it. Yeah, I kind of thought you might actually. It says play. Each player discards their hand and then refills their hand as if it were the end of their turn. I used this last night against Blake, 
and it was perfectly timed. He had a great hand, and I had not so great of a hand. So I thought, okay, I'll just get rid of this and hopefully draw better cards. And sure enough, Blake had a great hand that he didn't want to get rid of, and I forced him to. So Hated what happened. Favorite. Love the gameplay. Yep. It almost puts me in mind of a little bit of the, the sort of um, the, the value proposition that you get from Eureka, but even a little bit better because it really does impact your opponent. So Eureka is the Logos card that gives you a pip of amber, and it basically says it's an alpha effect, gain two uh, amber, and uh, discard two cards at random from your hand, I believe. So the deal with that is understanding that your turn might get messed up, but you're getting three amber no matter what. That's a good mm -hmm. value proposition, especially 100%. if it's in an early turn or something like that. Um, what you're looking at with uh, a punctuated equilibrium or punctured equilibrium is the idea of I may end up having to get rid of some cards that I couldn't play or discard this turn um, and draw up, but my opponent has to do the same thing, and it's probably going to mess up their turn more than it's going to mess up mine because I got the opportunity before I played Punctured Equilibrium to play cards out of my hand. So especially if you've got like a hot turn where you're able to almost empty out your entire hand and then play it as your very last effect, that is nasty. Not to mention you can keep playing more Untamed from what you draw afterwards as well. Oh, is it not an Omega card? No, no it's, it's not. not. Oh my goodness! It's that's why it's a rare because it's it's that powerful. You can't have more than one almost because it would just be crazy. So you you potentially could see, uh, you potentially could see twelve cards, and then even more if you like. For example, if you didn't play Untamed yet and you have pretty much like an all Untamed hand, like which is possible, especially with the archiving abilities, you could essentially just go boom, 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 all Untamed, refill six, play maybe two or three more on top of that and get even more cards from that it's like it's it's insane the way it can dig through your deck absolutely absolutely it's a workhorse agreed indeed one of the other things that we got to do last night uh was the three of us got to play a three-player game of keyforge which is something i'd never done before you guys had the opportunity to do it previously is that correct yes yes man what a fun format and what a different feeling to the game uh, Blake, do you want to fill folks in on how we played, essentially? Sure. So we, we basically just set up like you would uh, any game with the three of us, and we used the, the good old reliable app of Schwazi to see who went first of the three of us. And you draw cards as per usual and set up. The player who goes first gets seven. Everyone else gets six. Uh, and then we went clockwise from who won. Uh, the only real significant difference when you're playing three-player is the capture ability. Um, and then when you're targeting an opponent, you get to select which opponent. When you're capturing, you get to select who captures. And we just played that whatever creature captured, whoever destroyed the creature, the creature got the captured ember back. So it was almost like a steal necessarily rather than just a capture. So one of the things that we had to clarify was that some cards have an effect that specifically says your opponent. So for example, a burn the stockpile. If your opponent has seven or more, they lose four. Those ones had to be targeted. However, anything that said it just affects your opponent's creatures, we just applied unilaterally across everybody who isn't the person playing the card. And that actually worked surprisingly well. I was expecting there to be a lot more hitches based on cards that weren't designed for three-player, but I don't think we even had one because we set out that rule at the beginning of just like choose targeted effects 
And then uh, if anything seems to broadly affect everything else on the board, then go for it. And that made a lot of sense to me. I think we had that that easy time because Blake and I had played this once before. So we had the hitches last time, figured out what we had to do this time to make it go smoother. One one thing that's really cool is we didn't, I don't think any of us had this card, but a doorstep to heaven in three players is so good because it, it states each player. So in that, in that situation, it affects everyone. Yep. Yeah. It almost makes me wonder if they haven't considered multiplayer as a format, like internally. They must have had those conversations at FFG at some point. They like, must. Those have. guys are are players themselves. There's no way that they haven't thought about this. But whether or not they design around it is another question entirely. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder if they almost will make like one set that's that format, almost like a commander in Magic, where you you're designing the set to be a multiplayer thing, where the wording has that, and that'd be kind of cool if they did like a mini set that that had that a short run or something. That actually is a good idea. I like we'll see, that. the game's still young. It'll probably be years before they, they waver from just getting oh, yeah. the initial things going. Absolutely, 100%. I encourage everybody, if they have the opportunity, to try a three-player game. We might even get so far as to try a four-player game. But one of the things that I did find about the three-player game, and I wanted to mention this, was that the back and forth between the different players and who we were focusing on trying to prevent from forging, I thought was a very interesting dynamic because there was a lot more table conversation and we were very like okay with basically just allowing people to openly collaborate. So there's a lot more of me going... All right, uh, Rick, have you got a way to stop Blake from forging? Hey, have you got a card in your archive or anything that's going to be able to stop him? Or should I focus on doing it right now? And so there was very much a political dynamic of like, am I going to try and convince my uh, opponent who isn't about to forge to concentrate their efforts on the third guy instead of me? Or, you know, there, there's very much that kind of interplay. And I think there's a lot and of room for psychological play and gamesmanship in there. Exactly. Yeah, I found that very interesting too. Um, I mean, when I played Magic Multiplayer Commander, it's it's something that's inevitable because if someone's getting really powerful one way, you, you need to stop them because if not, the game ends and you want to keep going. So it made it very interesting. And I think in our game, we had many swings that happened as a result of things like that. And it was actually all Rick. who He was the only one able to put, to put people off key. So it was always one of us having a conversation with him. Can you stop him now? And, and just going back and forth, which was uh, which was really interesting. I was the middle player, so yeah. I, as I made a comment last night, I was the middle man. <laughs> the best feeling in any game of Keyforge is knowing at the very end of it that it came down to the wire. I would rather play a game that ended where I just barely eke out the victory than a game where I totally stomped my opponent because a game where you come down to that wire and it just squeaks out feels so much more satisfying to me. And I very much felt just because of the dynamic of the people at the table and the dynamic of the way three-player plays where there's a lot more opportunities for somebody who's starting to get too powerful to get stopped by two opponents, much less just one, that it was a very interesting one. Yeah, I'd agree with that. All right. Uh, last segment of the show. This one's called Help, Help from, future, from self. future Self. It's about level up moments in Keyforge, those little moments where you realize something you didn't know before that makes you a better player. Do either of you gentlemen have one for this week? So I happen to have one that happened, and it was because I misplayed. And it was sad. So I was playing in a chain-bound uh, tournament, and I had a moment against a really good player who ended up winning the whole the whole day and uh the situation was where we were 
getting to the latter part of the game, I think we were both on our second keys, or I was, he kept stopping me forging, he had three miasmas, so he just kept stopping me. And then I got to a point where it was kind of a sketchy um, situation where stuff needed to happen, and he had just forged his second key, and his ember situation was not uh, really threatening at that point. I think there was three. And my hand was what I would call an ideal hand, because I had three logos cards and three shadows cards, um, the third house was Sanctum. I didn't have any, but I had a couple on the board. And the cards that I had for Logos was a Doc Bookton, a Bat Drone, and a Fogify. And then on my Shadow side was a Bait and Switch, a Ghostly Hand, and a Naughty. So I kind of... And then the board was... There was neither of those houses on the board to really do anything because the Sanctum was in effect there. So I kind of was in this position where I had to... Where whichever one I choose, I would get the same card draw from it. And I chose the wrong one, and I chose Shadows because of the ghostly hand getting the two ember right away and putting me much closer to check and the bait and switch had absolutely no effect playing it so i didn't hold it i actually just discarded it and then i played the naughty and it was such a bad play because the naughty still had the thief effect of stealing and so and then so did the bat drone so those two were kind of equal then you had the doc Buckton with a five power and a fogify to stop playing uh any action cards or not being able to fight but their board state was like fight was not really an issue so it would have been just an ember pip so i went for the more ember play and it was the wrong one because i should have held that bait and switch because the card return was the same thing and i ended up losing almost because of that because next turn they they did a crazy ember turn and if i had that bait and switch i would have put them off and put myself on uh with even with just the two ember seal it was the perfect amount and it was the card that was needed to win and I didn't have it because I, I evaluated the raw ember instead of the future gameplay, and it was such a big mistake. I, f I felt like I honestly felt like such a noob doing that too. Like it was such a bad play, and it's one of those plays that is like the fact that I did it so badly is great because it's gonna scar me, and I won't do that again. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think having the the ability to have Doc booked in, in the bat drone even to steal, depending on what my card draw was, would have been. I would have been in a better position. I would have had more options because holding that bait and switch one more turn. I mean, it was essentially a one ember difference. And I and I, w I didn't put myself in check or I was already in check. It was something like that. That's what it was, was I had more ember than than my opponent. So because they miasma me, so the bait and switch was nulled. And then next turn I did forge and they were ahead as a result. And I should have just held it that one more turn. It was such a poor uh, foresight. And uh, I really regretted it and was really sad. As with so many other things in life, failure is a great teacher. You have been listening to Help From Future Self, a casual Keyforge podcast. My name is Alex, a.k.a. Scuzzy Gruen on Instagram and Twitter. Blake, where can folks find you online? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Boulevard Paper Fight. That's BLVD Paper Fight. And I also have a YouTube where I uh, show some gameplay and unboxing under the same name. Those have been a lot of fun coffee and Keyforge. Check it out, folks. Rick, where can folks find you on Twitter? I am on Twitter as the Wheeling Key Forger. All right. Thanks very much for listening, Archons. Keep forging. Keep forging.